Media, the podcast. I'm not an expert. However, I do speak with them with the view of providing you with expert information and advice to help you be the best parent that you can be. Together, let's give children the life they deserve and a positive future. Hello and welcome. Well, today we're going to do something a little different. Our format is going to be an open discussion with a mum about her experiences with postnatal depression and the details of the strategies that she used in supporting her recovery. Now, this is all in the hope that this information will give hope to parents facing similar challenges and to testify that recovery is always possible with the right support and advice. Now, to share her deeply moving and personal story, uh, we welcome our special guest, Josie Smythe, a mother who experienced postnatal depression twice after the birth of both of her children. Now, since recovering, Josie uses her experiences to raise awareness, reduce shame and stigma, and encourages affected people to seek help through her social enterprise, Smiling After PND. Thank you so much for joining us today, Josie. How are you? I'm well, and thank you for having me. This is uh, a very uh, emotional and deeply moving discussion to have, and um, I just really wanted to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, speak about your journey um, through anxiety and postnatal depression. Um, And this takes a great deal of courage, which we're really, really grateful for. Um, So to begin with, I guess before we sort of start and and really talking about your personal journey, uh, we published your article titled Smiling After PND. Um, Now, for someone who hasn't read the article yet, can you please tell us what the article is about and what inspired you to write it? So I was inspired to write this article, I suppose, as a beacon of hope for other parents who may be also experiencing postnatal depression And there seems to be a delay between experiencing those symptoms and getting the help. And a lot of that seems to be shame and stigma. I think there is some negative stereotypes uh, when it comes to mental illness and particularly experiencing it after having a baby. There's that added layer, particularly when we see ads on TV where the mum is cooing over her baby and we see women pushing their prams in the street um, with a smile on their face. The the hidden thing is the challenges that parents may face because it's such a life-changing experience having a baby. Um, And for me, I experienced postnatal depression with both of my children and I found that there isn't a lot out there in terms of the message that it is a treatable illness, it's recovery is possible, and it's okay to not be okay baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where Smiling After PND came about and why I decided to write the article, essentially for hope. That's wonderful. So to begin with, can you please explain initially um, what is postnatal depression? Sure. So it's a common and debilitating mental illness And it occurs after birth. So there's perinatal anxiety and depression, which occurs from conception up until the first 12 months of the baby's life. And I essentially experienced symptoms that mimicked baby blues. And postnatal depression is not the baby blues. And that's another confusing layer because 
people might think, oh, it's the baby blues, which is an accepted term and we hear a lot about it. Mm-hmm. But postnatal depression is different because it's lingering, it's, it doesn't shift, it impacts your daily life and it essentially got in the way of me bonding with my children. So it was trouble sleeping even when I had the opportunity to sleep. It impacted, um, I, I lost a lot of weight, it impacted my appetite, I was irritable and angry, um, which is a real common feature in postnatal depression. Anger is is quite common. Um, And then towards the later stages when I wasn't being treated, very low mood, very sad, very unmotivated, uh, not not able to experience any joy whatsoever in the things that I used to find enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Now, you've just mentioned that there's a difference between perinatal, antenatal and postnatal depression. So I just wanted to ascertain just at the start, before we start speaking about your journey, just to clarify what the difference. Now, my understanding is that antenatal depression is when you experience depression during pregnancy, which affects um, up to one in 10 women in Australia. Now, postnatal depression affects up to one in six women, which develops between one month and up to a year after birth, where the baby blues, as you just mentioned, is generally just in the following weeks after birth, but then subsides, but postnatal depression continues. But perinatal depression covers a whole period from from conception um, up until your baby is about 12 months old. And this is because depression can start before or during pregnancy and continue after childbirth, um, as we, we generally hear. So is this your understanding of the difference between the three? Yes. Yeah. And so how common is postnatal depression then? So the current stats are postnatally, it's one in five women will experience postnatal depression and one in 10 dads. And so I, I raised that it's one in 10 dads that can experience postnatal depression because people are quite surprised not realising that dads too are, are not immune to postnatal depression. Absolutely. I was quite surprised when I read that stat as well, one in, one in 10 fathers as well. You know, and, and postnatal depression isn't an experience that people choose to encounter. It's a, a very unfortunate suffering and a battle that, that you have to fight your way through and to get to the other side. Um, however, you most certainly um, came out the other side for the better. So initially, I'd love to know how did your experience make you personally a healthier and happier person? So following my recovery, I realised through therapy, I suppose, that I'd actually had anxiety for quite some time from from, uh, being quite a young child. So this experience has taught me a new way of living that I can actually experience joy. I can actually experience being a parent and not having that constant fear of loss Um, and the negative self-judgment that um, was really impacting on my capacity to bond with my baby and to parent um, and to be a woman. Um, It was great that recovery enabled me to shift that negative thinking and it was more a strength-based approach in that what, what are the things I am doing well? You know, what what look how how well I'm raising my baby look how much we love one another so it's all of those um sorts of thinking that enables recovery to happen and that was through the assistance of therapy of course 
Yes, which we're going to speak more about in a moment. Um, but I wanted to ask you also, you know, you had mentioned that mental illness ran in your family, which meant that you were predisposed to postnatal depression. Um, and however, you don't necessarily um, have to have a history of depression um, before your pregnancy to experience postnatal depression. So I just wanted to ask you just generally um, what your thoughts are on, on that particular point. I think that postnatal depression or any anxiety and depression in pregnancy and post-birth is non-discriminatory. This is why it becomes quite challenging because you can have lived a life free of any depression or anxiety and then have a baby and bam, here are these signs and symptoms that you've never experienced before and can be quite scary and quite shocking. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, have you, have you had experience of anxiety and depression in, in, any, in your prior to giving birth or in your family, then you're more, you're predisposed. You're more likely to get it. But, it, but in, it on the other hand, you may not. So there's no rhyme or reason. So let's start at the beginning of your story. Now, I'd love to know, you know, what were the early signs of your postnatal depression that you could share that may help parents facing the same challenges um, identify the same I think for me it was how I was feeling. So it was very different to anything I'd felt before. Uh, I, I, I know that, you know, it's normal to worry about your baby, but these worries were very excessive and I spent a lot of time on Dr Google, <laughs> which only exacerbated those worries. Um, the fear of leaving my house I also found I just could not enjoy my food. I could not enjoy the things that I used to do, you know, going out and, and socialising, those sort of things stopped. I stopped answering the phone, um, cancelled a lot of catch-ups um, and just very sad, very low, very angry at the same time. Um, and th those feelings were quite scary because I... I they were new to me and I didn't know, was this an, an ordinary part of parenting? Is this what it feels like to be a parent? But it was only until these thoughts started manifesting in my behaviours that family and friends started to point out and said, look, Joyce, I'm really worried about you. These are the things I'm starting to observe. Have you thought about talking to your GP? And that was the first, uh, I guess, weight off my shoulders to think, oh, maybe... I don't have to feel this way. Um, so that was the first step really to yeah. treatment. I, I read in the article that you mentioned you were exhausted, yet you had trouble sleeping um, and you also experienced night sweats um, and just terrible um, thoughts racing through your mind that would play over and over. Um, and as you mentioned, you were off eating, you had lost a lot of weight um, and you were also very angry and snapping at the slightest of things. Um, and as, as you mentioned also that you began to isolate yourself from your friends and your family as well. I mean, at the time, were you aware of these things happening um, at all? And, you know, did you feel that you had any control over them at the time or did they actually have more control over you? Exactly right. That's exactly right. That the illness had had essentially, it was like something had invaded my body. It had taken full control and I was submissive to it. And I didn't really 
I, I didn't have the, because the thoughts were so powerful, I didn't have time to sit and reflect and think, hang on, is this, is this more than, than an ordinary part of parenting? Is this normal? Is this what I should be feeling? Right. I just kept carrying on. And the other thing is I had hoped tomorrow will be better. I just need to have a good night's sleep. I just need to eat a meal. But I did all of those things. I tried to sleep and I wasn't getting the sleep. I was, as each day passed without the treatment, the symptoms worsened and I started to lose control. Okay. And that was for, for what prolonged period then? Because every day you're hoping tomorrow's going to be better, tomorrow's going to be better type of thing. How long did that period sort of prolong for before you realise I actually do need, oh, I actually do need to speak to someone? Four months. and. Looking at research, that's mm-hmm. typically when parents reach out for help between the four and six months. And okay. for me, that's too long. And you, and you live long. eating, breathing this 24 hours a day. That is a very long period of time um, to be able to, to, to be in that state of mind, not only just for you, but for, for the baby and of course your whole household as well. And you've mentioned that you were afraid if you spoke to your maternal child health nurse and your GP during that period that you would lose your son. Um, and this must have been an extremely confronting and emotionally trying experience. So at that stage, how did you overcome the, those feelings then? So I think that was what contributed to the delay in reaching out for help. During that four months? Because of the negative stereotypes that mental illness carries. Yes. I thought that if I did ask for help, that maybe Leo would be taken away from me. Um, you know, that I may never see him again. I didn't know what the consequences were of speaking up, of of asking for help. I didn't know that what the, the treatment pathway was um, and not realising that, in fact, it is encouraged that mum and bub stay together. That's actually part of the recovery to keep huh. that bonding going. Okay. So at that time you had also really great support from your friends and family. So how did they help you during that time, during that four months? Was it more so after the four months after you had seeked help? I was very lucky that I have a close-knit family and a great group of friends who were really supportive and the support from them came from coming over and either bringing a meal or we'd have a cuppa um, with my immediate family, they would either watch the babies while I would go out to an appointment. They would actually come some of the time they would come to those first appointments. It would be just sitting and listening and validating what I was feeling with no judgment at all. And that I found really supportive. When I talk to them about it now, they say, but I didn't do anything. You know, I, wow. I, I just came over and brought a meal and I, and I say to them, you underestimate the power of being with someone when they're in their distress and not running away. That's really powerful. So for anyone watching and listening, and even if you're not the, the, the person affected directly by postnatal depression, if you're a family, a friend, um, a grandparent of, of someone suffering, it's more about just being there. It's, it's not so much about anything else. Um, and, and as you, from your perspective, you said that it's, it's that they were there with no judgment. They were only there from a place of love because they wanted to be able to support you. So it's not anything else, but just physically actually just being there. Is that what you're saying? 
Exactly. And that is really power to the person who's struggling because you are saying you are bigger than your illness. You know, the, the, the fact that there's still so much shame and stigma around mental illness. And I know it can be uncomfortable to see someone who's normally sprightly and, and ha- have, you know, um, a smile on their face to then being really low. I know that is confronting to see. But to be able to sit with that person empowers them to say, I love you more than your illness. And you are more than your illness. And you will overcome this. So you mentioned about the shame. Can you maybe just expand a little bit more on this? Like what, what is this feeling of shame? Um, what does it feel like? And I mean, what are some of the thoughts that go through your, will go through your mind at that time then where no one else sure. was judging you, but you're the only one, I guess, judging yourself. Is that right? Correct. So shame is a negative, um, it's negative self-talk. So a lot of my thoughts were I'm a bad mum, I don't deserve my children, um, I doubt me, um, I'm a burden, sort of very negative. There was no, there's no strength space to it. There's no positive, there's no hope in it. It's all, um, but also I think, that it's an extension of what society expects parents, new parents to be with a smile on their face and the baby sleeps well and everything's going hunky-dory when, in fact, having a baby is, is, you know, a huge life experience and it happens overnight and it's challenging. We need to talk more about what these challenges are and normalise them because it isn't all rosy-cosy. You know, there's trouble feeding, babies don't sleep, you know, there's colic, um, there's a whole range. You're exhausted, you know, if, if, if there are women who've had a C-section, there's six weeks recovery and then we're expected to just come home and act like, you know, we've just um, not, not had a baby. And the other point I raise is that where is the village? You know, I think a lot of support is in the hospital setting, but when you go home and you close that door, this is the time when we need our family and our friends to be there and say, hey, I'll look after bubs while you, while you shower or get that nap. You know, you really need that nap. Um, and, and that's okay. You're not lazy and you're not a bad mum to rest and to practice self-care. It's really, really important. And how about your partner um, and your husband at the time? How can you best describe to anyone watching and listening how they can communicate their feelings and emotions through to their their partner when to a, to um you know in a heterosexual relationship um or any other sort of relationship that it would be it could be very foreign to the other person because they they don't have the, the that 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 personal experience of what you're going through but how do you, how did you communicate that Exactly right. So my husband had not had an experience of a mental health condition um, and was uh, I would only imagine it to be quite shocking to him to watch his partner slowly disintegrate um, over days and months and not be able to do anything. And I find men are fixers. You know, we want to get in and fix. <laughs> and this isn't something he is not qualified to fix. But what I can say is that he was solid. He was consistent. He was solid. He was there. He allowed me to be who I was, not asking me to snap out of it. 
just coming from a place of concern and just reiterating by saying, you are such a good mum. I love you so much. I'm worried about you. Um, I really would encourage us, we can both go to the GP and have a chat. Um, I don't think this, you don't need to stay this way. So he was just reinforcing or rejecting all of the negative thoughts I was having and by saying you're such a good mum, look how well, you know, you fed Leo and played with him or... um, the positive reaffirmations, yes. Correct. And a lot of love, a lot of love. But what about in an instance when maybe the other partner isn't so supportive? Any other advice um, and or support that you can sort of share for a mother um, and, and what she should do in that instance then? Sure. So there are a few avenues. Um, the, the other thing that we found was our friends. So we've got both male and female friends and they would also reach out to Hugh. And I think that's really important. Sometimes when someone's going through this, the main focus is on the mum and we tend to forget about the partner. Mm-hmm. So friends checking in and family checking in on Hugh's welfare was really important. Um, but for the person experiencing it, there are helplines, free helplines that are available. Um, there's Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, who I volunteer with, also known as PANDA. So they have a national helpline. And they can guide you with what what are the first steps to, to reaching out for help. And for me, it was making an appointment with the GP and chatting to them and without judgment. So I, w- I have a really good relationship with my GP. And so that was the first step. So there are helplines. There's also your local council. So calling up your local council, um, in particular, you would be involved with the maternal child health nurse following birth. Mm-hmm. And they... For me, I was able to increase my appointments with them and they also spoke about what support groups there are available in the area. Now, sometimes there aren't many. Sometimes there's a wait list and hence the birth of Smiling After PND. <laughs> I like to see myself as a peer support person in the community. And um, I, I've been speaking with, um, as, as I do, <laughs> Um, on a daily basis, speak with different experts um, and recently had um, had an interview about telehealth services and the fact that telehealth services can help reduce wait times in a lot of instances. That There are a lot of numbers that are available 24-7 and as opposed to having to wait a week, a month, however long, um, irrespective if you're in a metropolitan area, if you're in a regional area, irrespective where you're located in Australia, that you have access to support 24-7 through telehealth services, through the likes of Panda, the Gidget Foundation, Smiling Through P&D, uh, your, your social enterprise, etc. It is really important for parents to understand that there is help and support out there uh, in abundance so that no one is ever alone. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned you were at that time, really afraid to be alone with your own thoughts. So I just wanted to ask you if you could expand on this for a moment. What does that actually mean and what did that mean at the time? Sure. I think for me, firstly, these thoughts were foreign to me. They weren't the normal way of thinking. Um, and they, was, they were scary. They were intrusive um, they were thoughts I'd never experienced before. Um, and I think what 
contributed to that was the lack of sleep. So it it Uh clouded my capacity to think clearly. So when you're exhausted and you're not eating properly, you don't have the nourishment, your thoughts can start to, um, they were going in ways that were not the normal way of, of, of thinking what I know myself to be. I know my normal predisposition. And, um, again, they were the sort of you're a bad mum, you know, Leo doesn't love you, how can he love you, you know, you're, you're not thinking clearly you know, you can't do this properly, um, really negative, really self-deprecating. So, I mean, how do parents know if they're just exhausted and if it's not postnatal depression? How can a parent recognise the difference in the feelings? From exhaustion? Yeah. What is the difference? Think, how can they feel the difference? I think it's when you have had the capacity to sleep and you wake up still feeling like you haven't slept it's groggy um it's it's a very empty flat sort of feeling um for me it was like I'd run a marathon but I hadn't run a marathon um it's it's physically and mentally drained you're empty you're essentially empty you've got nothing more in the tank to give um as opposed to you know, you've had a rough night's sleep and then perhaps the next night you get that good sleep and you're back, back up again. This is relentless. This is exhaustion of, of, of proportions I'd never experienced before. Yeah. So it's important to recognise then what I'm hearing is that sleep deprivation and increased stress are risk factors for new parents. However, when they hang around long enough, and enough of them actually build up that they actually lead to depression and postnatal depression. Is that right? Exactly. It's untreated. And it's also the capacity when you do have that chance to sleep and rest that you aren't, that your Uh thoughts are clouding that capacity to get that rest. Okay. So it was after then you were diagnosed with generalised anxiety disorder and postnatal depression after that you did seek help from a GP and some specialists and you started taking antidepressants and you were referred to a psychiatrist um, on a mental health care plan that you started to feel better. Could you maybe just expand a little bit more on that particular point in time? So you, after sort of that four-month period, you had decided to, to finally see and seek help. Is that right at that time? Exactly. It was through the encouragement of family to go to the GP. I was still hesitant. Yes. Um, but it was reaffirmed that they were supportive and were happy to come along to that appointment. I think they also were concerned that in that appointment I would lie and say that everything was okay. Um, and so in that appointment it was established. I filled out a questionnaire, so an Edinburgh postnatal depression score came back really high for the symptoms of postnatal depression. And once I heard that term, it was like, oh, wow, it's, it has a name. This scary monster has a name. And not only that, when they said that this is treatable, here's a treatment plan, this is the path to recovery, I thought, yes, I love, I love a mission. Yes, I'm determined. I don't want to feel this way anymore. I have a plan. Um, I have I, a strategy. I have a way out of this thing, out, out of the tunnel. I have I'm a in way. a dark tunnel and I can see the light at the end of it now. Is that what it was? 
It was. And the fact that the treatment, the, the psychologist was a perinatal specialist, the psychiatrist was a perinatal specialist. So the fact that they kept reiterating, this is so common. I have seen this so many times. You are not alone. You are not the only one. And I have seen recovery in this office day in, day out. You are going to recover because this is treatable. And I was just, I was excited. I couldn't wait to get to the other side. But it is a slow process. Mm. There is work to be done. It's not that I, you know, I took a tablet and, and had a one-hour therapy session and poof. It was, it was a very slow burn. And that was kind of frustrating because you sort of take two steps forward and then one step back. You've got to be patient in the now, process. Is that because of the medication? Is it because at once you started taking the medication that there is an adjustment to, to the medication in your body? That's right. So even that um, has its pros and cons because sometimes there is a medication that may not fit with you. And this is why it was really important for me to be lined up with a psychiatrist because they managed the medication with me. And we had very, we had appointments weekly until um, the psychiatrist was happy with what she was seeing in my behaviors and my thought patterns. So it takes an adjustment um, for your body to, to get used to this medication. And sometimes you get worse before you get better, but that doesn't mean that it's not working. It just means you need that time for it to adjust and where we need a lot of self-care, a lot of rest, a lot of support. This is where my support network really came in um, and really, yeah, it wasn't something that I did by myself. Absolutely not. So if you could have changed anything in that experience during that time, what would it have been? You know, I, I had read that you had suggested that you only wish that you had a sp- uh, spoken up sooner. Absolutely. First and foremost, when I think about my time, I wish that I didn't wait four months. I wish that I was more honest with how I was thinking and how I was feeling. I wish that... Um, I was more kind to myself. I wish that I was able to see the things that I was doing and how much I did love my children throughout the illness. That never changed. My love for them and the way I cared for them never changed. So you've been able to demonstrate um, how as a, a woman and as a mother that you had entered into this situation, identified some issues and then seeked help and then sort of came out the other side. So for anyone watching and listening that may be experiencing the similar uh, feelings and, and situations, what is the first step that you suggest that they take? Is it to speak to their GP? Is it to speak to their maternal child health nurse? What is that initial first step that they should take? The first step would be to tell someone you feel safe with and trust. So research actually shows that it's not the GP is the first person that this um, that someone's suffering. It's actually okay. either a partner, a parent, a friend, a neighbour. It's someone you feel safe in your with support and network. You trust that you would in your support network. Right. So that's the first. So it would either be that they say something or you say something, and then okay. the next step is making an appointment to see your GP. Now, this is a GP, again, that you feel safe with and trust. So with me in first in those both instances, mm-hmm. they were GPs that I had established relationships with. They're the people that I went to when I was first pregnant and throughout my pregnancy. So they kind of knew what my general disposition was. Okay. And 
Yeah, and, and, and definitely your maternal child health nurse, absolutely, because you're seeing them very often in those first few weeks and they can identify, they've got the questionnaires that they can hand out, certainly maternal child health nurse and Panda. So you can remain anonymous when you call and get your foundation. So you can give them a call. You don't need a diagnosis to call them. Any, this is available for anyone um, in pregnancy and post-birth that can call these helplines and have a chat. Mm-hmm. Now, you've mentioned that you've experienced postnatal depression with both of your children. Now, how was the experience different the second time round, if at all? It was different. So Lily is my second. And with that experience of postnatal depression with Billy, there was no fear. So as soon as I started to have the thoughts and feelings, I knew, okay, I had this with Leo. This is different to what I was feeling when Lily was first born. Mm-hmm. I'm, I think I'm starting to experience what I now know is postnatal depression. And I now know what I need to do to get better. I'm going to call my GP and make an appointment and have a chat with them. Okay. So there wasn't this delay. There was no fear about losing Lily. There was no worry about the medication because I knew what worked. You didn't have that four uh, months of just absolute challenge at all. That you, exactly. You really seeked help as soon as you identified that you're not, you weren't feeling right. Is that right? Exactly. And no fear of shame and stigma. I knew that when dealing with health professionals, they'd seen it before. This is really common. These are the steps I need to take to start getting better. Which you mentioned earlier that the, the you know, looking back at your first uh, encounter that you had an experience, had you had the chance to relive it again, that you, that you would have seeked help um, a lot earlier. So realistically, any parent that is experiencing these feeling, feelings and identifies that they're not feeling right can take action much sooner than later. And that, that could be a really key takeaway from this chat today, would you say? But anyone exactly. at any point can actually take that step forward, not have to go through that four months of, of challenge. Absolutely. And you know what? The earlier you seek help, the quicker the recovery, the less time spent in that yucky phase. Yes. And you can get on with enjoying your baby and enjoying your life. You deserve a good life. You deserve yeah. to have that happiness. And you mentioned you increased appointments with your psychologist um, during that, the, the, the second experience. Um, you checked in with your GP weekly and began seeing a psychiatrist to manage your medication. So it wasn't just that you jumped onto the situation a lot sooner. You actually increased a lot of the appointments during that time as well. Did you find that there was a big difference the second time around when you did that? Exactly. And I didn't know that you could do that. I didn't know that with the maternal child health nurse, you can actually see them outside of those uh, where you sort of see them at the four weeks and then there's four months and the six months. I could actually call them up and say, I'm experiencing postnatal depression, therefore I would like to come in and see you more regularly. And that was acceptable. Also with the psychologist, I could increase my appointments and the psychiatrist. So the health system is there to support us, but it's in terms of getting that education out and letting people know that this is what is available to you and there is support out there. Mm-hmm. And as you've mentioned, you've, you've had a, a strong support network the whole time. Now, I'd like to know what the experience and how it was different the second time round. It was my understanding that you had some different experiences with the people that helped you. Could you maybe expand on that a little bit? 
I think what the second experience was that I saw less fear from family and friends. I think with Leo, there was a lot of um, shock and fear in, in families' faces because they had never seen me like this before. Whereas the second time around, they knew that this is what postnatal depression looks like and what my behaviours were. So that had come, that had been taken out of it. And also I found out through the maternal child health nurse that there was a support group in my local area. So that was fabulous to see other women in a, in a support group environment um, who were experiencing the same and we could just be, we could turn up, no judgment, um, didn't matter what we looked like or how we felt or what we said, there was no judgment. And having that support was so, so crucial. And I, and I was getting out of the house more. I found that because I didn't have that shame and stigma, I, I, even though I felt absolutely terrible, I was still getting out of the house, whereas the first time I wasn't, I was contained in my own little four walls. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was really different the second time around. As well. Now, you have a one-hour workshop that you have presented to childcare, kindergarten staff, personal trainers, midwives, maternal child health nurses, um, and a whole heap of other medical um, professionals. Um, I'd love to know what can you share with us that you talk about in that presentation that would be helpful for anyone watching and listening? For me, it's quite a bespoke presentation in that it's interactive. It's not me standing up for one hour and just yammering away about my story. That, that the story is weaved into this educational um, workshop where I come from, I want to gauge from people, how can we start having these conversations? How can we break the shame and stigma? Because a lot of the time someone may see someone struggling and not know what that first conversation might look like. So we kind of go around the table and think about what, what, are, what is the best way if we see someone struggling, how can we approach that person? So what, what is the language that's best used? Can we come from a strengths-based approach? What are the positives we're seeing? Um, and reminding that person that we are there for them. It doesn't matter how they're looking or how they're presenting. We are consistent and also self-care. So I wrap up the session um, on, a, on a note of self-care because at the same time as supporting someone who's experiencing postnatal depression, we can also experience burnout. So what are we doing to look after ourselves so that our mental health is at peak? And if we can't look after, I love the analogy of the oxygen mask, you know, if, if the plane's going down, we put the ox- we fit ourselves first and then we attend to someone else. So we need to look after ourselves to be able to look after others. And that comes with being a parent as well. We can't forget, we can't forget the parent in this, in this journey of, of raising a child. So through your experiences, what do you do now for self-care to ensure that you're looking after yourself that we could sort of learn from? First and foremost, sleep. So that to me is a trigger. So if I don't, if I don't get eight to nine hours a night, um, of sleep, I can already see that my, my, my thought process is, is going off track. So I need to ensure a good sleep routine, healthy hygiene. So that's getting off technology 30 minutes before having a hot cup of tea um, and reading a book and making sure that I get those eight hours. If not, resting throughout the day. And I also discovered when I was going through postnatal depression with Leo, yin yoga. I'd never heard of yoga before and I didn't think 
it's something that I could do because I'm quite an anxious person and this forces you to sort of sit and be present with your thoughts and a lot of breathing. So I learned through that breathing techniques really helps. And uh, I guess the other thing is setting aside time in the day. Being a parent, you really get no time at all, and particularly with COVID. But setting out snippets, if I can get, it doesn't have to always be an hour. It can even be five minutes. I'm going to make a cuppa and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make sure that I enjoy that. And it's okay if the kids have a little play because they're safe. It's yes. okay, but I'm going to look after myself as well. And and it's good for children to see their parents looking after themselves. So you're, in fact, whilst you're practicing it, you're teaching your children that it's okay to look after yourself. Yeah, I've spoken to a lot of occupational therapists lately uh, about the, the the idea of that self-care is something that we build into our day as opposed to having to block out specific time for it. It can be quite unrealistic to think that you're going to have an hour block of time or half a day to be able to have a massage and those types of things. Self-care rituals are built into our day, as you mentioned. It's just a matter of understanding what in our day gives us energy back. Is it just sitting outside in the sunshine in some fresh air for for 10 minutes with a hot cup of tea or coffee and having that as a self-care ritual every day? Those types of things um, that we need to be able to build into our day that, that are realistic as well. I think it's very important to understand what it is that gives us energy when, how, and how can we build that into our daily routine on, on a daily basis? Now, I'd love to know from your perspective, what does Smile Enough to PND do to support women and their families then? Sure. So Smiling After PND is essentially a support network for women and their families experiencing postnatal depression. And essentially, I tried to do it uh, outside of, of the home environment in my local area. We set up a support group, but then COVID hit. So I then moved it online and it's now a Facebook group and we now have about 60, 61 members as of today and some of them are outside of Australia. And essentially it's like-minded people who have either experienced postnatal depression um, or are caring for someone who's experienced postnatal depression. And it's a listening ear. We validate one, one another um, we offer su- support, whether it be that someone um, has a question about what, particularly now with COVID, you know, what, what kind of supports can we have in the home? What, um, how can I access my specialists now that COVID's hit? And so we know that it's moved to telehealth. So it's, it's validating, it's listening, it's offering a beacon of hope to say that I've experienced it twice. I've, I've gone through the treatment path and I've managed to recover, and you can too. Postnatal depression is something that's treatable and recovery is possible. And I think when someone sees that someone's come out the other side, it's, it's hopeful. Definitely. Look, we've, we've covered some really important um, topics and issues today. If you were to summarise, I guess, your key messages for anyone watching and listening at home, what would they be? I think the first and foremost uh, key message that I want to take away is that postnatal depression is common. So you're not alone in this journey at all and you don't need to be alone. So it's common and it's treatable and there is support available and it's okay to put your hand up and ask for help because there are so many outlets that do want to help you and do want to see you recover. 
Um, and so that those are really the takeaway key messages that I'd like to to give out today. And one of the key messages I've really taken from this is that the the earlier that you identify that you're not feeling right, that something is way it's not just exhaustion it's not just tiredness that there is something that after you have uh, some rest decent amount of rest that that um, these feelings don't feel normal to seek help straight away uh, worst case scenario that it's not postnatal depression um, it could just be an iron imbalance or something like that but the the sooner that you do seek help um, and minimize any um, suffering that, that you don't necessarily have to sort of go through, the early that you identify that, the better. That reaching out to people that you know, like, trust in your in your network is is critical. And if you do feel that possibly that the, the people you have around you, um, for whatever reason, maybe um, you may feel that they, they may be judging you, there are so many helpline numbers that are available 24-7. As you mentioned, at no point is anyone alone in this journey. So to, to, to utilise those numbers um, and to be able to access help and support as often and as much as possible and to be able to turn this into a positive experience at all times and understand that, um, that, that parenting is not meant to be too difficult, uh, especially in this day and age when we have so many su- support resources um, our, at our at our reach, and it's just you know with, with our mobile phone and everything else that we can sort of get out. So, now if anyone's got any questions and or want to reach out to you, sort of following this interview, whereabouts can they find you? So they can find me on www.smilingafterpnd.com. And I also have an Instagram page, which is Smiling After PND. And my Facebook support group is Smiling After PND Mums Group. So you can find me on that Facebook group, and I'd love for you to come along. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much today for sharing your, your deeply personal um, and emotional journey through postnatal depression. I'm extremely grateful for your time and uh, look forward to the opportunity of speaking with you again in the not too distant future. But in the meantime, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Josie. Take care. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye. I'm Rachel Monteleone and you've been listening to Kittypedia, the podcast. You can have full access to Kittypedia by visiting our website at kittypedia.com.au or following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. We're all here to help make the world a better place for our children and for generations to come. You can start today by helping us reach other parents by going to Apple Podcast, subscribe, rate and review this podcast. Thank you for listening and be sure to give my love to the kids. Bye.